With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Davro. Sorry. Uh, Kevin and I do this thing before we start every episode where you guys have seen it over the years. You know the thing that Russell Westbrook does before he starts a game where he has his arms off to the sides and he goes like back and forth across the back of his head with his arms? Well, well Kevin and I do that before every single it's like episode. like a hype thing. We, Kev, how many episodes have we done at this point? Like 180 100 and something. Almost every single episode. It's very rare if we don't do it. Yeah, just this one, I'm not going to lie, it hurt a little bit. I'm like Peyton Manning in that. Remember that uh, that 100th year anniversary NFL commercial where Peyton yeah. threw a pass, and then the guy that he was sitting next to at the table asked him something, and then Peyton responded saying, "Yeah, that one kind of hurt." That's how I feel right now. We're getting there, bro. We're getting up there. But um, I mean, outside of that, outside of my you know shoulder getting shot, um, dude, this weekend was lit when it came to sports. It didn't really matter which sport it was, whether it was hockey, whether it was basketball. We had a huge boxing fight this weekend as well. We also had a UFC card this past weekend. Just, dude, this past weekend was super exciting, no matter Jam-packed. which sport you were watching. Jam-packed. I'm like, I'm just, because I'm, I'm, I'm like recollecting everything and I'm thinking about it all. And I'm like, dude, we got playoff hockey, playoff basketball, baseball's in full swing, the UFC card, the boxing match. And I mean, like, the Rangers went to overtime with the with the Devils. Obviously, you had multiple playoff games come down to the wire today and yesterday. It's just like trying to process everything. Like despite us having an agenda and us preparing and all these things, Kyle and I still have to like sometimes catch up with games we missed. And it's like they may be twenty four to forty eight hours old, and we'll sit here and we'll watch film or highlights together and have the same reactions at the same time. And we're like, yo. Did you just see that? Bro, did you just... It's like we're like kids in a candy store. We just love sports. And we were texting each other the entire time throughout the games today. Just, I know we'll get to it later, but dude, that Warriors-Kings game, obviously when this comes out, you guys will hear it on Monday, but when we were watching this game on Sunday, it was just insane. It was one of the best games that we've seen in the playoffs so far. It was just a nail-biter that came right down to the end. And I just remember texting Kev after that game went final. I was like, dude, that game was wild. I think you said something like, just, dude, I just love the playoffs. It's the only reaction you can give. If you love sports, you may not like basketball, but because it's so fast-paced, you don't have to wait for the line of scrimmage to be set up like football. In baseball, you don't have to wait for the pitcher to get set up or the batter. Basketball is legit. 
until there's a timeout or a stoppage of play. It's never ending, which it's is like, why the, the basketball playoffs to me are the best round of playoffs outside of hockey because hockey's more physical. I'm just not an overall hockey fan. So that's why like when the NBA playoffs are on, the first round is always the best round to me because you have a slate of games every day. Oh, it's speaking of physical, I know you brought up the hockey thing. We I was watching the the Lightning Maple Leafs game on Saturday. You want to talk about physical? Dude, in the third period, huge fight. Massive. Love me some hockey fights. There, there were guys sitting in the penalty box for five plus minutes after this. His Braden Point got he got wrecked into the corner. It was pretty bad because he got up and then as he was trying to get back to uh his bench. He ended up just kind of like keeling over and like holding on to his ribs and couldn't deal with the pain anymore. And then he just ended up like sliding like five or six feet, just holding on to his ribs. It was crazy because like my dad, my brother and I, we were all watching the game and we all thought like, oh, he's done for the rest of the game, probably out for the rest of the series. This dude comes back five minutes later and is out there on the ice. Hockey players are just different breeds. I'm telling you, dude, like I know... When it comes to hockey, like in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't get as much popularity compared to the NFL, the NBA, and maybe baseball. Baseball and the NHL are kind of like it goes back and forth. I'd probably probably watch baseball personally, but I mean, entertainment wise, you got to go to the hockey game. It's a toss up for bronze as far as I see it. But when it comes to the physical nature of hockey, dude, these guys are on a different level. There was another guy. Uh, it, it was in a different game a couple games ago. He ended up getting a skate across his face. Homeboy got 75 stitches. Came back in the game. 75? Came back in the game. Warriors, bro. People leave games now for cramps, dislocated fingers. Like hockey players be like, yo, take that shit up, even though their finger might be like that way. Unless it was Kobe. Kobe just walked to the sideline. And uh, G- yeah. uh, Gary Vitti was their trainer back in the day. He's like, pop, right, pop back in. And then Kobe just walked straight back onto the court. Yeah, he was like, one, two. He didn't even go to three. He just popped it right out. Kobe was like, all right, I'm ready. Yeah. But um, no, it just overall, just to kind of wrap this part up, just, dude, this past weekend was just super exciting. Phenomenal. I can't, Absolutely. I can't, I can't wait to dive into the topic. So I'll, I'll let you take the floor from here, bro, when it comes to that. Yeah, no, like Kyle said, jam-packed agenda today. We're going to hit three sports, basketball, baseball, touch on some hockey maybe a little bit at the end as a recap from Kyle. And then, of course, we got to talk about, you know, we have to talk about the Garcia and uh, and Davis fight that took place yesterday, uh, late last night. And, uh, I mean, like I said, we have so much to talk about. We got five NBA games starting off with the Knicks taking a 3-1 series lead against the Cavaliers, sweeping their two games front in Madison Square Garden. The Knicks looked incredible. Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, the slate of just performers that happened at Madison Square Garden. At one point, I believe the Knicks had to play a game, then the Rangers had to set up, then the Knicks had to play again, and the Rangers play again tomorrow. So, like, Madison Square Garden is absolutely jumping all day long, similar to the Lakers, but we'll get into that in a second. Then we go into the Warriors game. The Warriors come out and tie this series, which they go 2-0 in, uh, in the Chase Center, and they tie the series up 126-125. to 125. Comes down to a Harrison Barnes three-point attempt to win the game, and he loses. Or should I say, and he misses. Then we're going to go into the Lakers-Grizzlies. The Crypto.com Arena also had the similar situation where it was the Lakers game, the Clippers game, the Kings game, then back to another. It was just these 
arena managers, these arena faculty teams that switch up and replace the floorboards and put the ice. Like, shout out to them, man, because they busted their ass this weekend in Madison Square Garden and the crypto arena. So, man, it was absolutely incredible. I saw a video on Twitter where it was like, obviously accelerated and fast forwarded, but the things they have to do to take the court apart, get the ice set up, then obviously put the, the what is it? The trombone, tromboni, the, the whatever, the Zamboni. Yes, the, the, the Zamboni. The, yeah, that, that, see, that's what I'm, I, I always get words like that confused. And then they had to get the Zamboni out there. Bro, again, shout out to those workers. But the Lakers take a 2-1 series lead against the Grizzlies. At one point, it was 35-9 to in the first quarter in favor of the Lakers. It was a rout. And John Morant single-handedly willed them back to make it a lot closer than what it was because it was, like I said, 111-101. to 101. Ja goes for 45. I think he had 14-9. and nine. Hold on a second before I go and, and misquote myself. Ja Morant goes for 45-13-9. 45-point triple-double, basically. Absolutely incredible. He's the only reason why the Memphis Grizzlies were still in this game. But again, the Lakers take a 2-1 series lead with Game 4 tomorrow. Then we have to talk about not necessarily the game of the Suns and the Clippers because the Suns ended up taking a 3-1 to one lead in that series as well. They win this game 112-100. One, 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 Clearly, words are going to be a struggle all night tonight. Here we go. Um, Kawhi Leonard is out for that game as well. We're going to talk a little bit more so on the load management aspect of what the Clippers have done for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And despite the load management and how much they've taken care of their bodies and prevented them from playing back-to-backs to prevent injuries, both of them are still injured. The postseason is here, and they're unavailable anyway. So is load management necessarily worth it? We'll talk about it later. Then, of course, we have to mention, dude, the Miami Heat are up 2-1 against the one-seeded Milwaukee Bucks. Granted, Giannis Antetokounmpo has not played since Game 1, where he exited that game early. But Miami also lost Tyler Hero for the postseason with two broken fingers. So they're both missing key players. Obviously, Giannis is more important. But the fact that the Miami Heat are winning in the fashion that they are, they won this game at home by 22 points. You're telling me without Giannis Antetokounmpo, you get run off the floor in Miami by 20-plus points? I don't know what's going on in Milwaukee. I don't know if Giannis truly is the key. Not that he's not important, but you still have good players on that roster to at least make these games competitive. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Then we're going to talk about the MLB. The MLB is almost a full month in swing, and there are some pretty decent surprises with some teams that are leading the way in their respective divisions. Obviously, the Tampa Bay Rays were 13-0 at one point, and now they are 19-3. Then you have to go about the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are on a seven-game win streak. They're 16-7. They're leading the Central. It's kind of crazy that those two teams are doing what they're doing. Uh, I'm not trying to discredit the Rays, but I don't think anybody expected them to be damn near 20 wins and three losses this early on. So we'll talk about these biggest surprises in the season. And then again, like I said at the top, we're going to talk about the Davis and Garcia fight. Davis wins in a TKO in the seventh round. Looks like it was a shot to the liver or the rib cage to where Garcia could not get back up. He was just completely shot. It looked like his body completely shut down. And uh, it was quite the fight for those seven rounds, albeit I didn't get to watch all of them. Uh, I kind of watched, I think, one through three. I was caught up in the basketball game and then losing service between rounds four and five and then pick it back up just in time for six and seven for the knockout. So I was able to watch that fight. Like I said, pretty entertaining. But overall, like Kyle said at the top, what a weekend. Kyle, we're going to start off right off hot. We're going to go right into the Lakers. Wow, Lakers-Knicks. We're going to go into the Cavaliers-Knicks series. So Kyle, to kick this one your way, this game was not what we expected. But the fact that the Garden was jumping the way that it was, led by Jalen Brunson and those boys, what are your thoughts on the Knicks taking a 3-1 lead? I mean, this was an impressive win 
from the Knicks as far as I see it. Just because Kevin and I, when we were picking this series before it started, we picked the Cavs to win it in a relatively close series. And as far as I see it, this series has lived up to the expectation. It hasn't lived up to our prediction of how we thought it was going to play out. But nonetheless, the Knicks have been playing phenomenal so far in this series. And just this two-game stretch that they had at the Garden, which was wrapped up by Game 4, winning by the score of 102-93, to just... I'm going to tie it to these three main points when it comes to the Knicks and why they've been so successful and why they're one game away from advancing to the second round. I just got to start with their paint presence down low. When it comes to what the Cavs have for their bigs compared to what the Knicks have for their bigs, the Knicks are winning the battle down low. This mostly has to do with Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson is not somebody that is going to go out there and score 20, 25 points and be a legitimate number one, number two center in the NBA. He's not in the same category as somebody like Jokic or Joel Embiid. But what he does with the Knicks in being able to get offensive rebounds, get some points down low in spurts, and get the Knicks in a situation where they can get second chance points, that's huge. And the one thing that has really been a focal point in this series is the Knicks have been doing that consistently the entire series. Outside of game two, the Knicks have been phenomenal down low in the paint, and they're winning the rebounding category the majority of the time. And then, you know, going to the second point, they are playing outstanding defense. In game three, they held the Cavs to, I think, the single worst offensive total, not just with what the Cavs have done throughout the entire season, compared to any other team in the NBA this season. I believe the Cavs were the first team this season, to not hit 80 or more points in a single game. That's how effective that Knicks defense has been so far. And even in this game in particular for Game 4, they held Donovan Mitchell to a relatively pedestrian performance. Don't get me wrong, I thought Darius Garland really stepped up for the Cavs in the second half. The, the Knicks didn't have a huge answer. They didn't have a huge answer for him in the third quarter just because he was popping off. But when it came to Donovan, they held him to two points in the second half. I mean, Donovan's their number one guy. And to hold him to under 20 points, that's a win every single time. And then I think when it comes to the third point, it's just Jalen Brunson and RJ Barrett have been huge in this series. Jalen Brunson almost goes out and scores another 30 points. And then RJ Barrett goes over and scores another 25 plus points. Between the two of them, they scored 55 they scored 55 points between the two of them. That's huge. Especially with RJ Barrett struggling early on in the series. Kev made a huge point about RJ uh, within the first couple games of the series. And when he went back to the garden, he seemed like he finally got into rhythm. He seemed like he finally got back into pace and he's been killing it. We'll see if it transfers uh for game 5 when they go back to Cleveland. But he's been absolutely huge in this series. You know, just overall, the Knicks have been the better team the majority of the time this series. They're getting great contributions from their star players, and their role players have been critical here. And that's despite the fact that Julius Randle has been struggling the entire series. He got benched in the fourth quarter in that game four against the Cavs. And yet they're still going out and they're getting just these wholesome performances from every guy that you could think of that's been playing up to snuff for the Knicks this year. They've been getting good contributions from Jalen, from RJ, 
and even Josh Hart. And then you could throw Mitchell Robinson in there just as more as from the rebounding side of things. Overall, the Cavs just don't have an answer to be able to slow down Jalen, RJ, and with them losing the defensive battle, especially in the rebounding category, you know, the Cavs could have this wrapped up. I mean, excuse me, the Knicks could have this wrapped up in game five if the Cavs aren't too careful. And it just seems like to me, the Knicks are on one right now. And I know we kind of saw uh, some some good scenes from the Garden. The Garden was hyped that entire two-game stretch at home for the Knicks. And it's well-deserved. The Knicks have been playing very well. And there's a good chance that they could wrap this series up in five if they go to Cleveland and get the job done as far as I see it. So, Kev, I'll kick it to you from here. As a native New Yorker, it's so fun to see the garden the way that it is. It's crazy to see the city pop off. I mean, after game three, the, the, the Knicks fans were going crazy. Side Talk New York, if you guys follow them on Instagram, they were having fun with the crowd. And then, of course, today after the game, they shut down 7th Avenue screaming Knicks in five. I mean, once again, I, I say it every year come postseason time, no matter the sport. New York City went all sports teams are performing well, or should I say that sports team in that moment are playing? They're undefeated. The city is is just people don't understand. New York, Philly, Boston, Northeastern fans are just they're they're built different, right? So to get into the game, Josh Hart is the MVP of this game by a mile, not close. The energy that he provides, the spark that he brings. I mean, he told Tibbs today, where I think Tom Thibodeau had told him on the sideline, "Hey, I'm going to give you a minute of rest. I, I need you back out there." His response was, I can give you 48 minutes if you need. That's the type of player that New Yorkers love. That's the type of player that the Knicks need. That is the spark that the Knicks have needed to come into the second unit or to come off of the bench. He is starting now because of the impact he directly has on the glass and in transition. But what Josh Hart is able to provide as an overall teammate is irreplaceable. I mean, he scored 17 in one game, and he had 10 boards. Then you talk about today, what he was able to do in transition again. Well, like I said, he had 19, 7, 2 steals. I mean, Josh Hart is just somebody that's going to go out there and play his ass off, play good defense, and hustle. Those are players that just get so much love in New York. Whether you play for Brooklyn or the Knicks, it doesn't make a difference. But the fact that he's a New York Knick, the fact that he got the New York Yankee symbol in his braids... Guys, that is ridiculously lit. I am not a Knicks fan, but I found that to be so fire. So, I mean, again, from an overall game standpoint, the Knicks could not be stopped. Jalen Brunson was on one. I Obviously, I, I miss Jalen Brunson that much more as a Mavericks fan. Seeing him this successful just makes me really happy for him because he's able to really flourish into his own person. He's really... The flower is able to bloom. He was kind of like a bud in Dallas. He was kind of just kind of like starting to open up a little bit. You saw the stardom kind of emerging. Now that he is in New York in his own garden, to pun intended, Madison Square Garden, right? Um, it's kind of crazy, man. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for the city. R.J. Barrett heard the cries to say, you know, he needs to bounce back in games three and four at home. And he scored 20-plus points in both games. So the big narrative for me that Kyle and I are going to talk about right now, dude, Julius Randle, what in the hell is happening with this guy? The fact that he barely played in the second half, was sat down for the fourth quarter, Kyle, I, I, I got to get your thoughts. I mean, my analysis on the game is, is done here. Julius Randle is supposedly the second or third best player. If not, in some New York Knicks fans' minds, he may even be the best player on the team. What he's able to put on the floor with 20-plus points a game, 10-plus rebounds, he can pass the ball. We've seen what he can do. He's a former All-Star. Just can't get it done in the playoffs. 
What are your thoughts on Julius Randle's performance? We don't have to go into individual screens here. It's just, I got to hear what you're thinking. I think with me, I think it's just poor shot selection. Because when I look at Julius Randle, Julius Randle is a big guy. I don't know what his height is off the top of my head. If I had to guess, he's probably like 6'9". Six, six, nine, nine, six, somewhere around that. Kind of almost like similar. 6'8". Okay, so kind of similar to what Braun is as far as height is concerned. And Julius is a big dude. This dude is, is like, what? 240 somewhere around there cool. maybe two, 250 I literally he just should backed be... out of that window it's hilarious uh, he, he is 250 okay he's just a big guy drive into the lane Dude. use that big size to your advantage I don't know why he is deciding to just settle for these long range mid jumpers uh, these long range I guess you could say jumpers there's definitely some mid-range shots that he, you know he could definitely get some opportunities to knock down, but if those jump shots are not working for you, you have to make the adjustment. You have to start driving into the paint, and you have to start either getting layups or getting dunks because one of three things are going to happen: either a you're going to make the shot, b you're going to miss a shot, or e or c you're going to get a boy. Wow, can't even get my ABCs right. Jesus Christ, <laughs> and c you might get a foul call and you might go to the free throw line. So I feel like at this point, when it comes to Julius, you know, maybe there's a silver lining here. Maybe this benching in the fourth quarter would be a good thing in the long run. Cause I think he evolved. People probably knows that he's struggling and, you know, tips has got to make the decision to be able to find somebody that's going to maximize the effort for the team and produce at a high enough clip to where they can win games. And, if Julius is not that guy right now, Tibbs is going to have to look for somebody else. I think when it comes to Julius, I think this could be something to kind of reshape his perspective to kind of get him out of this funk. Maybe this is something that he needed. But I think at this point, he needs to simplify the game. I think he should just use that big frame of his and just drive. Just drive the whole game. You might get one or two charges, but you might get five to six opportunities to be able to get to the free throw line and make an impact that way. I think if there's an open jump shot where the defense is giving you enough space to work with, take it. Take that 15 to 20 foot jump shot. If you get an open three, take it. But if you're taking these contested three-point shots or these contested mid-range jumpers, I don't think that's working out in this series. I think throughout the regular season, he could probably get away with it because, let's face it, regular season intensity in the NBA is not the same compared to playoff uh, intensity in the NBA. It's just not the same. You can definitely tell that just the level of competition has definitely gone up a step. I can't say for game three, because game three was an abysmal performance from both teams as far as I'm concerned. Defensively from the Knicks, it was good. That's the only bright side I could put to it. But for the series as a whole, Julius, I think, just has to simplify the game, drive, drive to the basket, and see if he can make an impact in that way. Look, game five is going to come up in Cleveland. This could be a redemption game for him in this series. And honestly, he's probably overdue for one. So I think just drive, drive the fucking ball. It's that simple. We, we know the potential that Julius has, right? So I have the stat sheet pulled up for his season this year. He played 77 games in the regular season. He averaged 25 points per game, 10 rebounds, four assists, those are good stats. Incredible numbers, right? You go into the postseason, it is a drastic dip. 
-hmm. 17 points per game, doubled his turnover ratio from two to four. And then you go and you look at his field goal percentage. He is shooting 29% from the field in the playoffs, as opposed to 29% from three-point line, excuse me, in the playoffs, as opposed to 34 in the regular season. 46% field goal percentage in the regular season. 32. And he's just not playing well. In his last three games, he has scored, his last four games, 19 points in game one, 22 points in game two, 11 points in game three, seven points in game four. In field goal percentage, 30% field goal percentage this game, 20 last game, 40 the game before, 35 the game before that. It's, we, Kyle and I talked about this right before the episode. There are just some athletes that struggle in the postseason, whether it's the bright lights, the pressure, you want to amplify, you, you want to exemplify the fact that you're the alpha on the team or like, you know, set a precedent that this is my team. Maybe you're resentful of Jalen Brunson. I don't know. But the fact that he is taking such a drastic dip on a regular basis whenever they're in the playoffs, the turnovers, the shot selection, the attitude, the frustration, whatever it is, he needs to get better. He needs to figure it out because the Knicks right now are winning basketball games without him. That's the crazy part. I think people need to understand, once again, with basketball, it's a team sport, right? Multiple people are putting in contributions to win basketball games. If Julius Randle is 50% of what he is in the regular season, even if it's not 25 points, give me 15 and 8 on efficiency. Bro, these games are blowouts. All of them. Because you got RJ putting up 20-plus in the last two games. Jalen's carving it up. Josh Hart technically is a role bench player who's playing starter minutes on both ends, giving you 15-plus points, double-digit rebounds damn near every game, and Julius Randle's shit in the bed. Can you imagine if he was playing just half-decent? The Knicks would be—this This could have been a sweep. I'm not even exaggerating. That's how good the Knicks are playing right now. Aside from Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland, the Cleveland Cavaliers bench— and role players, excluding Levert. Levert is going to be the outlier because he had two bad games in the first two games, and in the Garden, he found a way to step it up. But what I'm saying is, for Julius Randle, get out your head, focus on the game, and just like Kyle said, you are six foot eight, 250 pounds. You are one of the most physical, dominant forces at the four position. There's no reason why you shouldn't be shooting 10 to 12 free throw attempts per game because we all know if you put that left shoulder down into somebody, or that right shoulder because you're left-handed, you're going to be at the free throw line. You're that dominant. And, and all, just watch the ball go in. And also think of it from this perspective as well. Teams have to account for him defensively if he drives to the paint. Because if he drives to the rim, I guarantee you the Knicks are going to have shooters out on the wings. And I guarantee you, even though that they know that Julius is struggling, they're not just going to give up freebie layups, layups. to Julius. No they're not going to let him do that. So if Julius... It's just more assertive and takes a little bit more when it comes to chances by just driving to the rim. It's going to open up these three-point shooters that the Knicks have. Granted, the Knicks didn't shoot threes well in game four. They were eight of 29. They only shot 27% behind the three-point line. It's yeah. not a good stat. The Cavs didn't do any better. They, they shot 26%. So the threes were just not falling for either team. But when it comes to Julius in particular... You just can't let him have free reign into the lane to get to the rim. I think if Julius takes advantage of that potential situation going into game five, where he's in attack mode by driving into the paint consistently, it's going to open up the defense because the defense is going to have to crash on him. 
because they just can't let him have free reign to the basket. And I think there's going to be some opportunities for some of these guys like Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart. Maybe Emmanuel quickly can, can get it going because Emmanuel quickly put up a goose egg in 19 minutes in game four. And we know what Emmanuel quickly can do. Emmanuel quickly could go out there and get you 20, 25 points. Hell, he can even drop you a 30 piece every now and then. So, you know, when it comes to Julius, I know that Julius needs to definitely step it up. But honestly, I think the same could go for quickly. I think quickly even had a worse game compared to Julius. I know Julius gets a lot of flack because he's somebody of higher magnitude when, when it comes to the core players of the Knicks. But I think quickly needs to get it together too. I think if those two guys get it together uh, for this game five, and who knows that they advance to the second round, those are going to be the two players are going to have to look at going into the second round. They're going to have to step up because if they get these kinds of contributions going into the second round, potentially, and they get Julius and Emmanuel start playing better overall minutes. Watch out for the Knicks. We'll bro. see. That's all we'll I'm going to say. If it, they keep that, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm leaving it at that. Cause I'm not going to get overhyped. Obviously the Mavs are out. I will always cheer for the Knicks, so I'm 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 rooting really hard out of the Eastern Conference for the Knicks. So I digress. Yeah, we have some other games to get into because I can talk yeah. about the Knicks all day. All right, what's next? Let get, yeah, let, let me set you up for this one, bro, because this was probably the best game that we had from Sunday, by far, without a doubt. Golden State wins in a. Would you say a classic? This game had like a classic type of feel to it, it's just a because full of, on nail biter, bro. Yeah, it was. Back and forth the entire game. Golden State wins by one point by the score of 126 to 125. They tie up the series at two games apiece. They do exactly what they needed to do. After they lost the two games on the road to Sacramento, they go home. They win both of their games at the Chase Center. Game three was just a blowout. They just smoked the Kings in game three. But this game four came right down to the end. Harrison Barnes had an opportunity hit the game-winning shot. Unfortunately for him, misses the shot. The Kings lose this game. And going into game five, this is going to be an incredible series from here on out. Um, obviously, as you guys know, these are best-of-seven series. So whoever wins the next two out of three, they will advance to the second round of the playoffs. But Kev, I have to get your thoughts on this game because this game was just phenomenal, no matter how you look at it. But to kick this one to you, what did you make of Golden State winning game four and tying up the series against the Kings at two games apiece? This was a statement game because in the first half, it really looked like Sacramento was not going to run away with it, but it looked like they were just making the right plays, hitting some timely shots. De'Aaron Fox had 21 in the first half. It was just looking like Sacramento was going to find a way to have one of those let's just take over bit by bit, piece by piece. And then Golden State responds in the third quarter like they always do in the majority of their games and pops off for 37 points, and they limit Sacramento to 23. I think the reason for that change was they put Draymond Green to start the half as he came off the bench for the first time since 2014 in his career in the playoffs, so that was kind of a nice change. Um, they put Draymond Green on De'Aaron Fox to where I think De'Aaron Fox only had five or six points in that third quarter. Um, they really limited him. They really shut him out. He got cold. Uh, Sacramento had to rely on some other players to kind of step up for them, to which they did slightly. But again, 37 to 23, clearly in favor of the Warriors. But then it flipped again because in the fourth quarter, the Kings bounced back for 33 in the fourth quarter and Golden State's held to 24. Steph almost loses them the game by calling a timeout when Golden State doesn't have any. Steve Kerr makes a stupid challenge on a, I believe, a, a, a 
a charge attempt on Kevon Looney or uh, oh no, he was setting offense. a pick. He was setting, he was a, setting pick. a pick, and they called offensive, and Looney put his shoulder into him. I thought that was a very, very, very stupid challenge by Steve Kerr with only one timeout left to challenge and risk that kind of dumb. But I mean, Golden State holds on, man. They find a way. Steph just pops off for thirty-two. Uh, Clay Thompson goes for twenty-six. Jordan for twenty-two. Wiggins for eighteen, and then Draymond Green goes for a very inefficient twelve. He was three of fourteen from the field, but he had 10 boards, seven assists, a steal, and a key block on Demonis Sabonis in the fourth quarter to where <laughs> he was screaming at the top of his lungs, staring him in the soul, obviously probably hinting at, this is what you get for getting me suspended. But the series was getting chippy. De'Aaron Fox and Draymond Green were chirping back and forth in the second half at one point when there was a foul exchange. Alex Len was getting in the middle of it. I mean, like every single person in this series is just going back and forth. Obviously, Harrison Barnes won a ring with the Warriors in 2015, so he knows the team very well. Mike Brown was the former assistant coach for the Warriors. So there is some internal chemistry on both sides. And then you just kind of look at it and say, Golden State was down 2-0. The narrative was, are they done? Can they handle it? Um, you know, can Golden State even find a way to make this competitive? And they win both at home, albeit they tried very hard to give this to the Kings because Harrison had a pretty good look for three to win the game. He just shot it a little bit too hard where it hits off the back rim. But I'm looking at this and I'm saying, this is why I say Draymond Green is so pivotal to the Warriors because he can bring the ball up the floor. You know that he can score in the paint. Obviously, again, it wasn't a very efficient night, but those three baskets were very, very timely. And then you talk about what Draymond Green is able to do, court vision, I mean, seven assists. There were a couple times where he made some passes and people just happened to miss some shots. So he was three assists shy of a triple-double again. And he just brings the spark, the energy, the charisma. A lot of people don't like Draymond because he trash talks. A lot of people don't like him because of his attitude. But what he's able to do for the Warriors in that system is irreplaceable. Yes, they won game three and they blew them out. I feel like that was a back to the wall. No matter who's here and who's not, we got a ball out. We don't have a choice because if we go down 3-0, the odds are very slim. I think that him being inserted really helped them push their motivation, push their mentality past their limits to say, he's here to help. We got to do this and we got to step up and find ways to win games. So it was just an incredible game. And I mean, like literally back and forth and back and forth. Davion Mitchell made some good stops at some points against Steph Curry. He's a great defender. Donovan Mitchell's younger brother. Obviously, Damana Sabonis had a, an okay game. I mean, Sabonis goes for 14, 7, and 8. But... I don't know. There were some instances where he was just... They, the Warriors were able to predict his movements very well. And what I mean by that is there was an instance where Draymond absorbs a charge. Or excuse me, Kevon Looney absorbs a charge. Sliding in front where Sabonis kind of just throws his shoulder into him and it's a clear charge. The Warriors were really putting him in some tough situations to have to make some calls. And uh, it ended up panning out. The one thing I will say, they got to guard Keegan Murray. The rookie popped off for 23 points, goes 5 of 7 from 3. And I mean, like there was one point where it looked like he wasn't going to miss. So the Warriors got to find a way to limit what Sacramento is going to be able to do from the three-point line. Sacramento shot 40% from three. De'Aaron Fox is unguardable at this point. I mean, 38 points once again. Swiper, he's just popping off, man. I mean, he almost damn near had a double-double with nine rebounds. But I'm, I'm going to put caution into the wind here because the Kings played so well. And the fact that it came down to the final shot, this going back to Sacramento, it leads me to believe this series is going to seven because it just who's going to be able to win on the road is going to dictate this series, obviously, because it goes one in Sacramento, one obviously left in Golden State, and then one back in Sacramento if it decides to go back. This is going to be pivotal. The Warriors, in order to make a run, or should I say make a statement, 
have to find a way to win game five. Stephen A. made a very good point. The pressure is 100% on Sacramento. Young, inexperienced, just lost two in a row. Will that cast, will that team, that core be able to bounce back and say, you know what, we got to take control of this series again. We got two games left at home. We can do this. Or will the the veteran prowess, the veteran leadership, the experience of the Warriors say, you know what, this is how we're going to take this back. This is how we compete to try to go back to back in terms of championships. And I think Golden State finds a way to take five. But we'll see what happens. This game was great. Everybody was scoring. It was going back and forth. And I think Kyle and I talked about this as well. De'Aaron Fox is is emerging as a superstar. This is his first playoff series, and he is absolutely dominating. Put some respect on the Clutch Player of the Year. Yeah, if you stole my thunder on this one, too. Honestly, there's not really much I could add to it. The main point that I'm going to take away from this game is, you know, Golden State wins by the skin of their teeth. But that's not the main point. My main point is, dude, the Kings are here. Granted, I know they are probably a couple years away from any sort of championship aspirations. These dudes are here. These guys are giving the Warriors all that they can handle. And the fact that Harrison Barnes had the open opportunity that he had to shot the, the shot, he shot the shot a little too strong uh, for the game winner. I mean, we're talking about the margin of error is this slim, my guy. And, you know, granted, when it came to Golden State, they left the door open for the Kings to take advantage at the end of the game. And just the Kings couldn't capitalize on the last second shot. So, and that was despite the fact that I thought that Curry played well. I thought the fact that Klay Thompson was knocking down some shots. Andrew Wiggins was, was getting some good shots in there as well. I mean, they pushed Golden State to the brink. So, even though they fell short in this game, I'm actually going to disagree with all of the pressure being on the Kings for Game 5. I actually think it's on Golden State. Because when it comes to Golden State, everybody knows that they can't win on the road. Whatsoever. And even if they were to win Game 6, they'd still have to go on the road again for a potential Game 7 knowing that they can't win on the road. The record speaks for itself this year. We're one of the worst teams in the NBA on the road this year, probably the worst. I You'd have to fact check me on that one. I may have that one wrong, but they're yeah, definitely they're in like thir- the third, third worst on the road. They're bottom of the barrel bad. I'll just leave 100%. it at that. And my thing is, the one point that we made about this series before it even started, would Golden State be able to win one of these road games in Sacramento? At this point, they have I think to me, all the pressure is on Golden State to win game five because there's no guarantee that if they force a game seven, that they can win that game. Their record this year indicates that. Their style of play indicates that. They're a great team at home. They're one of the best teams at home in the NBA. But on the road, it's like they're a completely different team. They just can't execute. They can't execute at the level that they can at home on the road. It's really, really weird. And I think a lot of this just has to do with the fact that it seems like when they're at home, their defensive intensity, just the pressure that they bring to opposing offenses, seems to be heightened. And it seems as if offensively they can get it going on the road, but when they need a critical stop on the defensive side, they just can't get it. And I think in this series, 
the one person that has been giving them fits the entire time has been De'Aaron Fox. They don't have an answer for him. And, you know, the fact that they were able to contain him in that third quarter, but in the fourth quarter, he just took off. He's given them all that they can handle. And I'll be honest with you, dude. I think if Kevin Herter was performing even 25% better than what he's been this series, I think the Kings, you know, would be going back to Sacramento for game five, potentially wrap up this series. I mean, Kevin Herter has really been the one player for them that has fallen completely short. You know, you have Keegan Murray, who's the rookie, and balled out in game four. Dropped almost 25 points. Was knocking down three-point shots when given the opportunity to. But Kevin Herter scored two points. He just looks like he's completely out of sorts this whole series. And, you know, another thing that when it comes to these games, especially when it's like a one-point or two-point game, Kevin's a free throws. I know this is something that maybe we didn't discuss a lot about, but when it comes to these free throws, had the Kings made all of their free throws, that's a two-point win. I mean, granted, they shot 83% from the free throw line. That's pretty good. But even De'Aaron Fox, I think, missed a free throw or two in this game. Monk and Fox missed one, yeah. So, you know, when the... The margin of error is this slim against Actually, that. I am incorrect. Um, De'Aaron missed two, and Lyles missed one. It, De'Aaron, yeah, De'Aaron makes both of his two. free throws. De'Aaron makes both of those free throws. He gets a 40 bomb and a one-point win, potentially. Like I said, the, the margin of error is so slim when you're going up against a juggernaut, against the Warriors, who have been here before. They've been to... Six NBA Finals since 2014. They've won four of them. Like This is territory that they have just become accustomed to. But when it comes to the Kings, this is new territory for them. First time in the playoffs in, what, 17 years since 2006? And I'm telling you right now, the Kings are definitely going to be a contender very soon. They are on that precipice. I think... When it comes to this series, if they lose this series, I'm not really giving up any sort of hope with them. This team no, is hungry. This team is hungry. They got they got an A1 player in De'Aaron Fox, who the only thing I could really criticize him on, and this is not like meant to be like a super harsh criticism, is that he's not the biggest three-point shooter. And he's still knocking him down. That's the crazy he, part. Bro, he was able to get that deficit to one point late in the fourth quarter with a huge three-pointer. And, you know, they just weren't able to get him in a situation where he was able to get a one-on-one matchup to get the game-winning shot. Had to go to Harrison. Great defense by Steph to help out Draymond up there. So, yeah. It's just... This game five is going to be special, dude. With the way that this series has played out so far, I guarantee you Sacramento is going to be jumping for game five. We won't do a prediction for it but all i know is get your popcorn ready because game five in sacramento that place is going to be wild and it's going to come down to can golden state win on the road or can sacramento keep what they've been doing so far in this series and win at home kev that this series is literally neck and neck it is a wild series I mean, you called it. It's it was the it was the series that everybody needed to tune into. Obviously, I picked the Knicks and the Cavs, which has been a good series, but it's it hasn't good. been as competitive as this one. 
Yeah, that game three with the Cavs and the Knicks was just an absolute stinker. Yeah, that was kind of it's, boring on in Cleveland's part. But, but, but with this one, dude, this one, dude, it, it's just it's a it's an amazing series. I I wish that they they could just play this series on out for like a best of nine. But, yeah, that'd uh, be great. Just literally give the crowd what they want, right? Just play this over and over and over and over, and the winner of this series wins the NBA championship. I don't give a shit about anybody else. But no, honestly, I'll just leave it at that. But like I said, game five is going to be something. Sp- Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Special. Kev, That's up, for next, sure. up next, which LA team do you want to talk about? Dude, we got to talk about your Lakers. I, I, I got I to gotta talk to you about it. I know we were texting, and I know you were watching the Lightning game, because I was keeping you was, updated on the score in the first quarter, because oh, you were wrapped into that Lightning game. Oh, for sure. But Bro, once that Lightning game ended, I went straight to the Lakers game. I, Guys, when you talk about dominance... You think 15, 20 points, right? You, th- you, you think of a decent, you know, game like that. 35 to 9 in the first quarter. Single digit points in an NBA game. In the playoffs, the Grizzlies could not hit the ocean if it was in front of them with a two by four. Like they, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't touch anything. It was ridiculous. And the Lakers just found a way to dominate between turnovers, hitting some crazy clutch shots, and everybody found a way to contribute once again. So, Kyle, the Lakers go up 2-1. Game four, scheduled for tomorrow. What are your thoughts on the Lakers just pretty much embarrassing Memphis outside of John Moran dropping 45 points? The Lakers were extremely impressive at home. And I was just utterly flabbergasted by the fact that in the first quarter, they were up 26 points, 35 to 9. I think if I had my math right, I think it's 26 points. It's, it was an unbelievable start. And I know in today's NBA, when it comes to these massive leads, I'm of the mindset that these leads are never safe. And even I was kind of getting to the point where it's like, damn, 35 to 9. I just, I don't know how the Grizzlies are going to be able to come back from that. That's just too big of a deficit, especially early on. But I have to say, give credit to the Grizzlies. They chipped away at that Lakers lead. You know, they got it from, I think at one point it was damn near like a 30-point lead in the first quarter. And they damn near trimmed it to half. Um, I think it was like a 16-point deficit by halftime. Which, you know, give the Grizzlies credit. You know, they didn't just wave the white flag and call it a day after their first quarter. They really uh, gave the Lakers a, a decent run throughout the rest of the three quarters, except for the first. But... I think by and large, once the Lakers got into a rhythm in that third quarter, because they kind of had a a down second quarter compared to what they had in the first quarter, I think that pretty much kind of gave the Lakers enough distance away from the Grizzlies to keep this game well in control. And that was despite the fact that John Morant just utterly balled out for the Grizzlies in the second half. Kev, I think at one point, I think he scored like 20-some points in the fourth quarter alone, he was just single-handed. straight. Like, he was just on another level. It's just too bad that the Grizzlies had to dig themselves out of this giant hole that 
they dug themselves in in the first quarter. But, you know, that's the nature of the game. You dig yourself into this massive hole, it's going to take a hell of an effort to be able to come back from that, and they fell short in that regard. The fact that they only lost by 10 points is kind of astonishing, knowing how bad they played in the first quarter. But when it comes to the Lakers, the Lakers have just been a really cohesive unit so far. That's really been my main takeaway with LA so far. LeBron has been very consistent, but this has not been a series where LeBron's had to go out there and score a 40 bomb for the Lakers to be a viable team in the playoffs so far. I don't know how the Grizzlies can be able to hold up defensively when AD has been cooking them the entire time so far in the series. They do not have an answer for him. He dropped 31 points and what had 17 rebounds. I know they have Jaron Jackson Jr. on the other side who was well-deserving of defensive player of the year. But they just don't have an answer to be able to slow down AD. And until the Grizzlies be able, they can find a way to adjust to that, they're going to struggle defensively against what AD's been presenting them. And the Lakers role players outside of LeBron and, LeBron and AD have been huge for them. Austin Reeves goes out there and scores 15 to 20 points consistently. I think he dropped 13 in game three. Roy Hachimura has been Utterly sensational for the Lakers so far. Had a huge game one. Had a very solid game three as well. He dropped 16 points. D'Angelo Russell had a very nice game in the 31 minutes that he played. I believe he scored 17, 18 points around that margin. It just, overall, the Lakers have been getting great contributions. They've been playing pretty solid defensively in this series. Except for that game two. That game two was just, that was just a bad game for them across the board. But, Throughout the first three games, the Lakers have been the better team. And, you know, going into game four, if the Lakers go up 3-1 in this series, it might be a wrap. Because when I look at the Lakers just as a unit, they have been better offensively. They've been playing much better defense than the Grizzlies. And it it just seems as if the Lakers have the Grizzlies number at this point. And unless the Grizzlies can use their youth and athleticism and really tire out this Lakers unit, which in some cases is a little bit older knowing LeBron's age. Unless they can find some pathway to be able to correct here, it looks like the Grizzlies are going to be bounced out of the first round of the playoffs, which would just be utterly astonishing because you know going into the series, I understand like for me, I am a Lakers fan. You know, I kind of hold my bias to the side when it comes to these analysis that Kevin and I have. But, you know, going into the series, I picked the Grizzlies to win the series. I could see a chance that the Lakers would win the series, but if you were to play the series 100 times, I'd probably give the series to the Grizzlies 80 times out of tw- out of 100. I'd give the Lakers maybe 20. But, no, the series has been honestly one-sided in favor of the Lakers. And depending on how this Game 4 goes... You know, if the Lakers go up 3-1, that would be huge for them. But if the Grizzlies tie the series up at two games apiece, that'd be huge. You know, essentially they would get home court back in their possession. A game five in Memphis, I would imagine, would just be wild, depending if Memphis were to win uh, that game four going into game five. But I think all the pressure is on Memphis right now. They have to get this game four. Because if they don't, I think this series could be a wrap. And there's a potential that the Lakers could wrap this up in five games if they go on the road and win in Memphis. But overall, the Lakers have been very solid so far. Memphis has been struggling, to say the least. And they got to get it together quick, fast, and in a hurry.
I mean, the game was crazy. I am kind of just in awe that LA jumped out to such a such an aggressive lead. And that's no disrespect to the Lakers. We all know what Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and that supporting cast can do. But an embarrassing output like that for the Grizzlies in the first quarter was just not something I would have expected. Despite John Morant being injured in obviously at the end of this game, but he didn't look very injured at all just because of how well he performed. Um, there wasn't much help outside of Desmond Bain, man. I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr., not only on the defensive side, was getting cooked by Anthony Davis, but offensively, he was only able to give you 13 and 5. Four personal fouls, six turnovers. I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. was getting bullied. He couldn't get anything going at the strike. I mean, he, he was 4 or 4, but he wasn't at the free throw line, is what I mean. He couldn't get into a rhythm to make his presence in the paint well known. And I just, like I said, everybody outside of Desmond Bain was just non-existent. I mean, Dylan Brooks ended up getting ejected for a questionable call with uh, Flagrant 2. I think he uh, he hit Braun with his offhand, what looked to be going for the ball. You can make the argument that he wasn't. It looked a little dirty, but I mean, again, due to his checkered past and history of, you know, his ejections in the, in, in, in the playoffs as well as in the regular season, Dylan Brooks is, he's Dylan Brooks. He gets too much attention as it is. There's not really much I can say there, but... I mean, like Luke Kennard goes for four, Roddy two, Aldima, Aldamana, whatever the hell his name is, six, Tillman goes for six, like these, a bunch of no names realistically outside of Tyus Jones, who ends up getting zero points, who is the highest paid backup point guard in the league, for those of you that are unaware, I believe he makes 15, 16 million a year, donut, so not the greatest look for him either, but I'm looking at this in general and I'm saying, Ja Morant single-handedly looked at this team and said, Yo, I need some fucking help. <laughs> 45, 9, and 14. There is not much more a man can do. Excuse me, 13. There's not much more a man can do with a busted hand, shooting hand nonetheless, other than what he did. I mean, if he would have went for 50, 60 points, I wouldn't have been surprised. Like Kyle said, 22 straight points in the fourth quarter. Could not be stopped. The Lakers couldn't guard him. Even Braun said it. That boy's good. There's not much you can do in somebody at his level when he get into a rhythm. But I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm looking at this and I'm saying the Grizzlies had 18 turnovers. They really could not do much. Anthony Davis was a monster. I mean, Anthony Davis had, I don't want to quote the wrong thing. I think I knew. He did have 30. Uh, he had 30, 17, two steals, three blocks. The defensive presence of Anthony Davis is being known. It's being felt. And I love what Darvin Ham has situated and looked at Jared Vanderbilt and said, I don't give a shit if you score zero points, which he didn't score. You are going to follow John Morant like white on rice. Job popped off for 45, but Vanderbilt knows his assignment. I'm going to be a defensive pest. And he also had three blocks and two steals. So they put somebody that is kind of an offensive liability to an extent outside of his pure athleticism in the occasional corner three. He's out there just chasing the best player on the floor all night. He had a positive plus minus of nine because obviously switches when Ja comes out the game and obviously guarding other people in transition. But I love what Darvin Ham has assigned him to do because you know you're going to get scoring from the other players on the floor. Reeves, Davis, Braun, um, obviously um, Roy Hachimura, who's been stepping up. But overall, the Lakers look like the better team this series. Ja missed game three or game two, we all know, and it didn't matter because we talked about this before. The Grizzlies play better without him. It kind of shows, once again, that, that everybody really is on a, on a different kind of pace when Ja's out of the game. But... When you go for 45, 13, and 9, you can't really make the argument that the team was doing more with him, or should I say they were playing better with him. Jaw was hot. You got to feed the hot hand. Obviously, the other players weren't doing much, and 
The Lakers just look unstoppable at this point, man. If they were to take a 3-1 commanding lead headed back into Memphis going into Game 5, I wouldn't be surprised. I do expect for them to bounce back. But due to the lack of depth that Memphis has, I mean, just again, going down the list of players that nobody really knows about, we're Conchar, Roddy, Aldama. Don't be hating I mean, on Roddy. Don't be hating on Roddy now. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hating. I'm just saying, like, these are nobodies, realistically. Like, there is no depth to this bench. Steven Adams isn't there. Obviously, Dylan Brooks gets ejected, which he isn't exactly any. I mean, three before he gets ejected, he was 3 of 13. Doo-doo. So you weren't really missing much. This might have been worse if he was still playing. So to be honest, like I said, the Memphis Grizzlies are missing some depth on the bench, but they're also not getting Kennard involved. I think that that's a really disappointing look for them because he's probably one of the best three-point shooters in the NBA. He only put up one three, only had four shot attempts. 25 minutes, yes, but he would look like he was just getting cardio because they weren't really getting him involved. For them to bounce back, supporting cast has to help. Obviously, they got to play a little bit better defense, but overall, the Lakers look phenomenal. And if they were to take a three-one lead, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's just for me. I'm just surprised at the fact that you know we're three games into the series. You know, obviously, the fourth one's going to happen on Monday night. That the Lakers would be in an advantageous situation at this point. I would actually expect at this point, going into the series, that the Lakers would have been down two-one going into Game Four which would have given all the pressure to the Lakers to win game four. And then you got a game five in Memphis to try to go up three, two, but it's just for me. When I look at the Lakers, their role players have just been phenomenal. That, that to me, maybe the AD part and maybe the AD part where he's just been absolutely cooking and the Grizzlies have no answer for him. To me, that's a series right there. You know, LeBron's not going out there and putting up 35, 40 points. You know, it's not like LeBron is carrying the whole team on his back like Doesn't he did in Cleveland. He's getting help, which is really probably refreshing for him, knowing that the last couple of years for the Lakers have been kind of tricky ever since they won uh, that finals in back in the bubble. So I think if the Lakers can be able to keep up the consistency from LeBron and AD, if they could average somewhere around, let's say if they combined for 50, 50, 55, I think that will work with them because that's basically what they got last game. And then if they're getting, you know, 30 to 40 from Reeves, Hachimura, and D'Angelo yeah. Russell, I think you take that any day of the week. Facts. You know, the only thing is, though, and when it comes to Grizz, when it comes to Memphis, you got to deal with Ja. And it's like you said, Kev, when it came to his hand injury uh, that he sustained in game one and missed game two because of, uh, it looked like a go- it looked like a complete non-factor going into game three because he just absolutely took over. So it, I'm not really worried about Jaws injury status going into game four. He's going to be ready regardless if he's dealing with any sort of swelling in his hand or not. But overall, I think the Lakers have done a very fantastic job. They've done a fantastic job against them so far. And we'll see what happens going into game four. But I think all the pressures on Memphis, they have to get this game four. they got to even up this series because if they do that, Memphis is going to be popping. Very similar to what I said with Sacramento. For their game five, Memphis would be in that same situation if the Grizzlies were able to tie up that series uh, after game four. Uh, but with that said, we are going to uh, kick it over to the other LA team. We're going to focus on the Suns and Clippers series. Um, just to kind of give you guys a quick recap of the last two games that happened in LA with the Suns and the Clippers. Uh, in game three, the Suns defeated the Clippers by the score of 129 to 124. 
And then in game four, the Suns were able to defeat the Clippers on the road by the score of 112 to 100. So the Suns go on the road, defeat the Clippers twice at the Crypto.com arena. I, I, I'm, still like, I'm still mad about the fact that you know Staples gave up the naming rights to that, that arena. But nonetheless, the Suns got the job done. And the bigger point uh, that we could look at with the Clippers was Kawhi Leonard was not active for both games three and four. Uh, he's dealing with some knee issues. I believe it's specifically a knee sprain. Brain, uh, that that caught... He re-aggravated in game one and played through in game two. Yeah, and he missed both, like I said, games three and four in L.A. And you could definitely tell that not having him on the court made a pretty big impact. That was despite the fact that Russell Westbrook went out and scored like damn near 40 points in game four. Basically put the team on his back. Uh, just didn't have enough uh, to get over the hump in game four for the Clippers. But it's mostly going to be about Kawhi. I think that's where a lot of the focus is being paid attention to right now when it comes to the Clippers. So, Kev, I got to get this one to you. With Kawhi missing both games three and four for the Clippers, is this load management thing coming back to bite the Clippers, knowing Kawhi's injury history, especially with the knee issues that he's been dealing with over the last couple of years? I think load management's a crock of shit, man. A lot of former athletes are talking about it, former NBA players, even current players like Anthony Edwards, albeit he's only 21 years old, so he's still got a lot left in the tank. He's a lot more, I guess, healthy, less less mileage on the body. But, I mean, like, you you go to the NBA to play the games. I mean, it's like that famous um, NFL meme that oh, the, the uh, you, you play to win the game, right? That's what uh, uh, Herm Edwards said at, at the podium as the head coach, I think, of the Jets or whatever the hell it was at the time. But the point of what I'm getting at is you go to the league to make it to play in these games, and you want to make it to the playoffs to compete for a championship. Load management is to prevent back-to-back nights, to save the your best players for the uh, for the postseason to 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 less expose them or the less potential of injuries. Kawhi Leonard missed about I think 29, 30 games this year. Paul George missed about 25, 26 games due to load management. And then of course the final couple games for Paul were because of the injury to his uh, to his knee. But you rest them, you keep them out of regular season games, you rehab them, you keep them away from the whatever their reasoning is, whatever the purpose of load. It ain't working. You trying to keep them? It ain't working. We paying you forty million. It, it ain't working. The Clippers went out and gave everything up for Kawhi and Paul George, and they have gotten to the Western Conference Finals one time. They're about to get bounced out of the first round because your superstar can't stay healthy. Your superstar is missing a multitude of games, multiple years in the past. Obviously, the ACL is totally different. We understand when you rupture your ACL, tear your ACL, Achilles, anything like that. We understand you can't play. Not talking about the ACL, but when we talk about load management to prevent injuries, to keep stars fresh, the concept of it is beyond me because it's not working. The people you are trying to preserve still get hurt. Braun is 38 years old. Load management for him is a little different because he's had a couple of miscellaneous injuries between the groin, the knee, the foot. But there were some nights where they rested him. Anthony Davis, again, is another outlier because he's actually always injured as well. But when it comes to these two superstars outside of the ACL, Kawhi Leonard's always dealing with something. 
You go and you give him the extension that I don't think that he needed, I think, a year or two ago to, to commit him to, to, to L.A. for another two, three seasons, and he cannot stay healthy. If Kawhi Leonard plays in these two games, I think this is a complete reversal. I think the Clippers actually lead this series 3-1 to one because you got Russell Westbrook out here going back-to-back 30-point games. The people that continue to slander him have no concept of what they're talking about when it comes to the sport of basketball. Did he take 29 shots? Yes. But when you look at the remaining stat line, nobody else really did shit outside of Norman Powell, who scored 14. Yeah, Terrence Mann at 13, but I'm not worried about him from an offensive standpoint. He'll hit a couple open shots if he's available. But again, Russell Westbrook was the savior to keep this game close. And I have to give a shout out. Tyron Lue is probably one of the best coaches, if not arguably the best coach in the NBA for what he's able to do with less. Both superstars are out, and each and every game has been relatively close in this series. You talk about 115 to 110. Obviously, the Suns blow the Clippers out in the second game, but Kawhi goes for 30-something, if not 38 points in that second. No, 33 points in the second game. That was the only blowout. But without Kawhi in games three and four, it's 129-124 and then 112 to 100. Relatively close. The fact that he's getting the most out of these players without their superstars present. I think Norman Powell dropped like 30 points last game in Game 3. Norman Powell, no disrespect, but that's not Paul George, that's not Kawhi Leonard. Those aren't your best players. And the Clippers are winning. Or excuse me, they're, they're losing by close margins. My bad. Yes, Kevin Durant's on the other team. Yes, Devin Booker's on the other team. And Chris Paul, and we know what they have. We know Torrey Craig is playing well. But when you put Kawhi Leonard in this system, in this team... As it currently states, I think they win this game. I'm not saying if you're injured, play through it. But I'm, we're talking about the concept of load management. Clearly, it's not going to make a difference. In my opinion, call it old-fashioned, call it naive, call it somebody that doesn't know about science, medical history, the body, whatever. But I'm of the mindset of you got to keep your body going so that it's not going to become brittle. It's like what they always say with kids. You got to let them play outside. You got to let them fall. You got to let them get used to getting back up and get their immune system acclimated to, to, to not being able to get sick or fighting through sicknesses without medicine. I think the same thing applies with sports. If you're going to take the athlete out of the athletic situation to prevent injuries, well, when they get back in the game and they haven't consistently been playing at a regular pace, I feel like injuries are more likely to happen just because your body's not used to it. You're not playing every game. You're not playing every other game. You're sitting here playing once a week twice a week. Bro, it's 82 games, and you're out here missing 25 to 30 games for the last couple of seasons. Again, excluding the ACL when we talk about Kawhi Leonard. I'm about tired of this whole load management or rest. It shouldn't be a thing unless you're literally going like three, four weeks straight, two, three weeks straight of no breaks and consistent travel where you're like, yo, bro, I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. That's fine. A rest every couple weeks is good, but when you're talking about missing a game every other week, missing a few games every other, that's ridiculous. You're getting paid $34 million. You got fans spending hundreds of dollars in tickets to come see you play. And you're not playing because you're resting? Really? Dude, Kyle just talked about it at the very top of the episode. Hockey players out here is getting 75 stitches. Hockey players losing teeth. Hockey players are out here getting punched in the ribs, elbowed in the... Whatever the case may be. And they're finishing games. You have no excuse to not be playing. I'm not saying that Kawhi isn't hurt, but if you're able to go, if you were able to play through it in game two, dude, there's, I know that there's things in the medical staff that can help you, whether that's a brace, whether that's medication, whatever it is you have to do to be available for your team in the playoffs. Because at the end of the day, right, let's say he don't play game five. You played two games and you lost one out of those two. Why are you on this team if you're not available? People were making fun of Kristaps Porzingis because he couldn't stay healthy. 
People were making fun of all these different NBA players because they can't stay healthy. Kawhi Leonard out here, and he's basically he's playing half the season. Really? And we paying you how much money? I'm 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 not having it anymore. I think the load management's a crock of shit. I think you should be playing as many games as possible because clearly preventing your body from injury or lessening the percentage of risk and injury does it matter? I don't think so. And you could also look at the situation that Victor Oladipo just went through. He tore his patellar tendon. And prayers up to Victor, know, man. You know, granted, I know that Victor wasn't getting a lot of burn, but it is a point when you put a guy out in a situation where he hasn't gotten a lot of game time in recent memory with the Heat, and then he goes out there and he has this unfortunate knee issue, knee injury, which is just, it's just, it's awful because this is like, what, the second or third major injury that Victor's had to deal with? Towards quad. Quad. Now he just shredded his knee. Yeah. I feel like I'm missing a... Did he tear his Achilles? I'd have to look it up. I I don't know off the top of my head. But the fact that the matter is, is there is a consistent theme when you don't put your body through that stress consistently. When you put it to its paces, and in this case, you know, you're talking about at least 40 to 45 minutes in an NBA game, you know, this Kawhi issue. Yeah, I, I think injuries do become more prevalent if your body's not accustomed to it more typically compared to somebody that's out there consistently. So honestly, I don't really have much to add. Kev pretty much hit the nail on the head as far as I see it. But when it comes to how I see it with Kawhi, if he has a legitimate knee sprain where, guys, I've never had a knee sprain before. But I've had ankle sprains before. And depending on the severity of it, you just don't want to go out there and test it and and make it even worse. Because I'll put this into perspective for you guys. Kevin and I were playing basketball a couple years ago. This is back when we were in college. Rolled my ankle. Kev, you vividly remember how bad that ankle sprain was, right? Kyle, what what were you wearing on your feet, bro? I I was wearing low tops. I'm not talking about that. No, 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 no. No, 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 I was wearing running shoes. You weren't wearing low top basketball shoes. What were you wearing? I was wearing running shoes. I think I was Not wearing just some running Nike. shoes. You were wearing what? I think I was wearing Nike free runs. Fly nets. Yeah, I was wearing fly nets. No, bro, if, if I was driving to the left. I was driving to the left too. It's the equivalent of this fucking tissue on your foot. Kev, I, I don't think it would have mattered. Dude. With the way that I stepped, even if I had high tops, my ankle went through it. Bro, I don't I'm, think you would have lost your footing if you had grip. I stepped on your foot. No, you didn't. You were driving and you misstepped because your ankle went under. I thought I stepped on top of your foot. No, you slipped completely. Because remember, there's sand out there on the court. I swear to God, I stepped on your foot. If you stepped on my foot, I didn't feel it. Bro, all I know is this man's ankle was the size of this microphone, like the, the ball part. Bro, Kyle's ankle blew up like a balloon. We had to go to the ER. Like, because he was screwed. It was It was huge. You know what's crazy, though? Like... I wasn't like that, like traumatized by it. I just was like, all right. Traumatized. I was just, bro, we walked into the ER and he was like, I think I'm fine. I stopped him at the door. (laughs) You know, I was kidding, right? You know, I was kidding. Like, I said, I I said, I need you to act like you're in dire pain. And he was like, what? What? You want me me to milk it for sympathy for everybody that's in the hospital? No, 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 no. Guys, guys, listen, listen, listen. As someone who has been in the emergency room a hundred times in their life, because I'm always hurt. We've talked about this. I'm just an unfortunate, brittle adult. I was a brittle child as well. The point of what I'm getting at is, right? You and Kawhi both, right? 
When you go, shut up. When you go <laughs> to an emergency room, if you are not in dire pain, everybody has been in those situations where you're going to sit in that ER for six, seven, eight, nine hours because they're handling priority. I said, bro, I need you to act like you're in massive pain. This motherfucker wanted to walk in, and I said, no, I need you to hop on. I think my brother was with us, my older brother, right? Yeah. I think my, my uh, shout out to my brother. It's his birthday. It was his birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Turned 31 yesterday, you old bastard. Um, I told him, I was like, get on my brother's shoulders. Like, let my brother hold you. And we're going to get you into the, we're going to get you in a wheelchair. We're going to make it seem like you're in a lot more pain than what it is. And we got seen that. a lot faster because if you would have walked in on your own power and you would have been like, I'm fine. If they would have asked you on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain? And you would have been like, a two. We would have been there forever. There's <laughs> Honestly, a method to my madness is what I'm it, saying. It, it, see, Kev, this is one thing that you don't understand. I'm trying to make the best of a bad situation. I'm not trying to be in utter dire pain. Because it's not about that. It's about getting out I'm of the ER before the next day. I was going to be out of there relatively quickly. I wasn't no, like, you I wasn't going to, I wasn't like dying of the flu where it's I was. It's not about that though. You're missing was, the concept. If you would have said no, you were fine, we would have been waiting finish. there for six hours. That's not the point. The point is <laughs> while we were there, your brother and I were having a hell of a time. We were having a great time in there. Well, we were watching Family Guy. Laughing. We, were, we were cracking jokes. We were making you uncomfortable. You don't talk yeah, about that I part. Getting, I was getting mad yeah. because I was like, the nurses are going to look over and be like, he's fucking lying. And they're going to keep us here forever. I didn't want to be in the ER all day, okay? I, first of all, whatever I say, it doesn't really matter. They could look at my ankle. It's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. It's like, even if I'm having a positive attitude about it, it's like, dude, it's like, okay, like my ankle's bad, but it's not like I'm like, Dying on my deathbed. I, I have to make you. the best of a bad situation. Your brother totally got that, but uh, it's because my brother that's was just like, the way that I, already fucking here. Yeah, and it's like you might as well crack some jokes and have some yeah, fun yeah. with it. Yeah, you, you just you weren't out. You were not having it that day. I was not. Ha I said, you, you see, I, I told Kyle before we started playing. I said, bro, you ain't got no hoop and shoes. He's like, bro, I'm fine. I got it. I was like, all right, let's. That was a pretty. That was, uh, that was a bad roll too. I, it was a bad I, ankle roll. Anyway. Back to the point, the load management is a crock of shit. Yeah, it's just, I think that it needs to stop. Well, I mean, with Kawhi, I, I don't know what his knee issues are post the ACL. You know, I don't know if... I think it's the other knee, though. That's what I... If I remember well, correctly from what but, I read, they said it's not the same knee towards ACL, which means this which, is a completely I, different thing. I understand that, but... Kev, have... Have his knees been a consistent issue over the last couple of years, even before yeah. the ACL? Yeah. Guys, we were talking about this before we even started recording. It wouldn't surprise me if Kawhi is dealing with some sort of potential arthritis in his knees that maybe hasn't been publicly discussed. Kevin and I were even talking about Brandon Roy back when he was a member of the, of the Portland Trailblazers where his career was cut short due to... Uh, degenerative knee issue and when it comes to Kawhi, Kawhi may be unfortunately dealing with something that just is that kind of comes with the territory of like a degenerative knee issue i don't know if that is the case if he's missing this amount of time consistently over the last couple of years and it happens to be because of these knee issues that keep popping up it could just be the wear and tear that his knee is just not holding up due to all the minutes that he was dealing with probably earlier in his career. So when it comes to Kawhi, I think when it comes to the knee sprain, oh, it's real. 
Like, I don't want to miss that point entirely. Definitely not fake, no. But I think when it comes to the loan management thing, I think privately, there's something going on with his knees. And if it's a degenerative knee issue or if it's arthritis, you know, I think that's the point that I think people need to start kind of focusing in on because that might be kind of like the missing link to this whole thing. Because if if it comes out that Kawhi has this significant issue, not just related to a specific injury, but it's in both of his knees, and that I could really sideswipe him off of his NFL, not NFL NBA trajectory. I mean, he's only 31 years old. I mean, depending on how you look at it, that's still somebody's prime. But it could come to a point where Kawhi may end up retiring early because of these knee issues. It wouldn't surprise yeah. me in the least if that is the case. Especially and, with his attitude and persona of just being like, I'm retiring. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it wouldn't surprise you, me at all. You, you, know, you know, honestly, I think he should probably get some sort of treatment the way that Kobe did. Remember when Kobe got that plasma treatment when he went over yeah. to Ger- Germany? Like, I think it was like 2008, 2009. After you like guys around lost the- to the Celtics, yeah. Yeah. And I know back in, back in that time, that was kind of considered unorthodox. I think Kawhi may need to start looking at some alternative options when it yeah. comes and to... And guys, we're not doctors. We're just thinking I'm out just, loud of, like, things. I, like, I'm just thinking of, like, I'm just thinking, like, thoughts in my head that just, you know, if these knee issues are just a consistent theme over the last couple of years, he has to start looking at some alternative options when it comes to some knee rehabilitation options because apparently whatever's been working or whatever he's been doing has not been working. So there's a part of me that just kind of feels bad that he has to go through these knee issues. I imagine he wants to be out there on the court, but it's if his body's just not allowing him to do that, it's just, it's the unfortunate side that comes with being a basketball player. You know, the amount of minutes that he's racked up and, you know, granted there have been a lot of other players that have racked up similar amount of minutes. They just haven't had the knee issues, but you know, structurally it's just, it seems like Kawhi's knees are just not holding up. And I think early retirement, I'm not saying that he should retire like this off season. I'm not saying that. I think Stephen A said something about that. Uh, like the NBA uh, countdown crew, the post game after uh, game four. Yeah. But you know, I think that's something that we have to start kind of like opening up the option to, or at least opening up the idea to that, you know, Kawhi's got this significant knee issue that is just more than just a knee sprain or just more than an ACL. It's, it's something, it could be arthritis. Yeah, Yeah. it it very well could be, but we don't want to drown on top of this, this whole thing. I mean, again, Kyle and I are on the same page. It's just, we find it funny that you're doing it to prevent injuries and injuries are still happening, which nobody's a doctor. We can't control it. I think they're trying I think they're trying to manage it. I think they're trying to manage an underlying issue that's not being publicly addressed. I think that's what's going on. But load management as a topic has been around since before Kawhi. Yeah. yeah. You know, and other players are involved as well. That was San Antonio. That was, you know, that's what San Antonio was running. Yeah, so I, 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 truthfully and honestly, I don't know who came up with it. I don't know where that term came. I don't really care. I think it's a crock, but again... We'll see what happens in Game Five. Phoenix is up three-one. Kevin Durant and Devin Booker combined for sixty-one I think points. Serious, so. a it's a wrap. I agree. If Kawhi doesn't play, it's over. I don't think he's playing in Game Five. All of the updates that I've seen said his knee status is not good right now, and I think oh, well. at this point, I, I I think that they should shelve him. Yep. Oh well, it is what it is. Lastly, got to talk about. 
this Milwaukee-Miami series. We know that they faced each other in a multitude of different playoff appearances before. We know that these teams are very familiar with one another. But it, the, 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 the looming narrative is the only reason this is happening is because Giannis is not playing. Our counterpoint to that is there's no reason that these games should be this big of a margin because this is relatively a very above average team, the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And it leads us to believe that maybe without Giannis, this team isn't as good as we thought. So, Kyle, I got to get your thoughts on Miami going up two to one against the uh, the one seeded Milwaukee Bucks. The Heat have been very impressive so far this series. Now, granted, it comes with a giant caveat because Giannis has not been out there since suffering what I would assume is a tailbone injury that he had in game one. And, you know, obviously when it comes to the heat, they're in the situation where honestly, they know blood's in the water when it comes to the Bucks. because if you don't have your number one player out there, obviously you're going up against just a battered opponent. And the heat have not taken that for granted because in game three, Kev, you know it as well as I do. That game three was just an absolute blowout. I mean, they damn near won by 25 points, and it never seemed like Milwaukee could get into a consistent rhythm that entire game to keep up pace with the Heat. And that's despite the fact that the Heat don't have Tyler Hero since he broke two of his fingers in game one. Really, just the injuries have been kind of a focal theme of this series so far because Victor Oladipo went down with a torn patellar tendon in game three. So no team has been spared when it comes to the injury bug so far but nonetheless the heat are going out there and doing exactly what they need to do jimmy butler has been a man on a mission the re-emergence of playoff jimmy has appeared once again and the bucks just don't have an answer for him whatsoever in game two you could say that maybe they had an answer for for them but that was mostly just because the bucks offensively they just could not miss they damn near scored 140 points in game two the heat still scored 122 so you know Unless the Bucs are going to go out there and score 120 points without Giannis, which is a pretty tall ask as far as I see it, the Heat have the advantage in, the, in this series. And honestly, they should. Because Giannis is an MVP caliber player. And when you don't have that, granted, you know Chris Middleton has been playing pretty solid in this series so far for the Bucs. Drew Holiday, you know, pretty decent. But after you get past that, you know, you're dealing with some role players. You're dealing with Bobby Portis. Brooke Lopez, Pat Connaughton. I mean, is that going to be enough? More than likely, probably not. Now, if Giannis were able to come back into this series, I think this series swings heavily in favor of Milwaukee because I think that Giannis will bring that stabilizing force to the Bucks, which would be a good sight for them at this point. I think that would get them back into the series and it could potentially lead them to win this series in six or seven games. But if Giannis does not come back in the series, this is the Heat's series as far as I see it. Because if they were to hypothetically lose this series against the Bucs without Giannis, you want to talk about a bad look? Kind of putting it into a description is kind of tricky for me because the Heat should win this series pretty convincingly if the Bucs didn't have their number one player to go with. So... Obviously, we've got Game 4. I'm expecting that the Heat are going to continue the dominance that they had in Game 3. I think that Jimmy Butler is going to go out there and have a similar type of performance that he's had throughout most of the games in the series. He's going to put up probably 25 to 30 points. He could put up even 35. 
especially with the way that he's been playing so far. And they've been getting good contributions across the board. Even Duncan Robinson had a pretty nice game in Game 3. I believe he had damn near 20 points in Game 3. They're getting good contributions from Bam Adebayo. You know, obviously, it it sucks that they don't have Tyler Hero because he can go out there and give you another 15 to 20 points consistently as well. So, you know, as far as I see it, you know, with the series going into Game 4, I doubt Giannis is going to play. I know that he's been questionable on the injury report, but um, the Bucks have been pretty quick to list him as out going into these uh, game time decisions. So I'm not really banking on the idea that Giannis comes back for game four. If he does, that's a huge plus for the Bucks. But I'm going to go with the Heat simply just because I can't bank on Giannis playing in game four. I think if Giannis comes back, it could potentially be game five. And then the Bucks would have to potentially win three games in a row to get to the next round. And I think at this point, that may be too big of a hole to come out of as far as I see it. So I think it's the way that I see it currently, this is the Heat series from here on out. And really, it's in their hands at this point as far as I see it. It's weird for me because I, everyone knows I love Jimmy Butler. He might literally be probably my favorite player in the NBA, if not one of. I can't definitively say that this series is over, even if Giannis is out for the remainder of it. Here's why. This is why statistics are so important. When you talk about the Miami Heat and where they fall in the NBA in their order of like, you know, most efficient offenses, most competent offenses, I think the Heat were 25th in overall offense. They are shooting ridiculously from the field and from behind the three-point line. 53% from the field, 48.5 equivalently, 49% from three, 88% from the free throw line. They're limiting turnovers. They had 13, so it's not great, but it's not horrible. I don't think they can keep this up. I just, I truly and honestly don't think they're going to be able to do this on a consistent night-in-and-night-out basis. Again, I know that this is only a 2-1 series lead at the moment. Depending on Giannis' availability, we all know that he is a defensive player of the year type of caliber player. We know that Drew Holiday is a great perimeter defender, and so on and so forth, right? It don't make no difference at this point because the Heat are just shooting the lights out. And I'm not trying to say that they suck or that, you know, like shooting is easy, but you have Jimmy going 12 of 19. You got Duncan Robinson, who's only getting minutes because Victor Oladipo went down, Tyler Hero went down, so they need somebody to step up. And Duncan, in his first meaningful game, plays 24 minutes, 7 of 9, 5 of 6 from the three-point line, scores 20 points with a plus-minus of positive 24. I think it was also his birthday, too, so happy belated to Duncan. It's... I cannot expect them to carry this out on a night-in-and-night-out basis. I know that I said that prior to Game 2, and Milwaukee ends up winning that game as well, but it's not like Milwaukee's struggling either because you have a good number of players that are providing good numbers. Grayson Allen, a role player, goes for 14. Drew Holiday goes for 19. Well, he does. Well, he had five turnovers, though. Then you talk about Chris Middleton. He had five turnovers, but he puts up 23 points, six assists, and five boards. They're doing everything they can, but Bobby Portis had his worst game of the series, and he only had nine points. Brooke Lopez isn't someone that's going to go out there and get you 15-20, but we know that he can. He only had not well, I can't say only. He only had three made field goals out of nine attempts. So I don't necessarily know where they can improve. They only shot 12 free throws, but made eight, so that's 66% from the free throw line, which obviously is well below league average. It's just like Milwaukee's really struggling 
to find their groove offensively, at least consistently, because we know games one and game three were in favor of the Heat, and they finally got it going in game two. We got to really see what, what, what Milwaukee's made of, man. This is why we said that it's, it's very weird to see that despite missing their best player, arguably a top three player in the NBA, it shouldn't mean that they're this bad without him. It truly and honestly shouldn't. This isn't like the Dallas Mavericks where like Luka Doncic is the only named player before the Kyrie Irving trade. Um, and you got to rely on a bunch of role players, if not like bench players, to go and step up outside of maybe notably Tim Hardaway Jr. at the time. This is Chris Middleton, an all-star. Drew Holiday, potential all-star, arguably one of the best, if not the best perimeter defender in the NBA. Bobby Portis, a six-man-of-the-year candidate. Brooke Lopez, who's a notable veteran, big man who can stretch the floor and become a defensive, li- not liability, a defensive anchor in terms of protecting the rim. And you have some solid players on the bench. Goran Dragic, you went out and signed him for a reason. Joe Ingles, a veteran in this league. You have Pat Connington, who gave them meaningful minutes when they won the championship a few seasons. Obviously, you have Jay Crowder, who people are trolling really, really hard, especially Twitter people and Suns fans. Like, oh, yeah, let's hold out and make sure you want to have a bigger role and then only play 13 minutes in game three and score five points. So I don't know why Suns fans are the biggest trolls and biggest clowns on the earth. Because when they're losing, they're silent. But when they're winning, they talk a lot of shit. But, um, yeah, like, they have notable players. This this team is deep. They have a lot of experience, and yet they're struggling. So that's why I say if Miami comes back down to earth when it comes to shooting the basketball and Milwaukee can just find a way to get into a rhythm, I think, truly and honestly, this can become a competitive series. Now, if Giannis were to come back in Game 4 or Game 5, maybe it'll be a difference. But if Miami finds a way to go up 3-1, to one, all Miami needs to do is have one more positive game with or without Giannis on the opposite side of the floor. It may be too big of a deficit for the Bucks to come back from, but I will say it is quite the impressive run thus far for the Miami Heat being the eighth seed and the last team to get into the, the, the NBA playoffs. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, it's just for me, I think this series took on a completely different life once Giannis left. Yeah. And obviously we'll see whether or not that he could be able to return in this series. Now, even if he were to return, we don't know what the capacity he'll be able to play at is. Because the only time that we saw him come back with the injury that he had was for, what, like a minute or two? Or and he, he just, just couldn't do it. He, he went right back couldn't do it anymore. Room. So, you know, depending on the severity of the injury, I mean, it's been severe enough for him to miss the last two games. And, I mean, going into game four, I mean, I'm not banking on the idea that he's going to play. And even if he were to play, are we talking 75, 80% maybe? I mean, is it going to be the Giannis that is always in the MVP discussion? Or is this going to be just an unfortunately battered and bruised Giannis that could actually be taken advantage of knowing that the Heat have been playing very well so far in this series? They've been the better team so far. And obviously, I know that comes with the caveat of Giannis not being available, but I mean, when it comes to the Heat, this series is in their hands. Yep. The, the pathway is fully lit for them. All they got to do is just 
continue to shoot effectively. I, For me, I'm actually more of the mindset that they're going to continue to shoot at a high level. And I think Giannis not being there, I think, I think when it comes to the, the psychology part of it, I think not having Giannis out there, the Bucks know that the margin of error for them is so slim to begin with, you know, without Giannis, that if the Heat go on this massive run, let's say they go like on a 10-0 run and they're just knocking down their shots left and right, it's very debilitating. And, you know, if you had Giannis out there, to be able to come back from a 10-0 run is, is relatively easy compared to not having him. I just think that mentally, it's a much it's a much more difficult challenge for the Bucks to be able to overcome knowing that they got to hit at least probably 50% of their shots in these games. If they don't, they're probably not going to be able to win. I think with Giannis, they could get away with it if they're knocking down about 40-45%. But I think without Giannis, they got to hit like 50%. They basically have to match what the, the Heat have been doing in this series. I, I just can't believe how well the Heat have been shooting. Don't I mean, make, it don't it, make no sense, it, bro. It, it, it's one thing to shoot as a team 40 to 45%, which is actually pretty good. Right. That's that's typically average. Was it game one they shot 60%? From the three-point line. I think for the field goal percentage, it was damn near up they had like high 50 too. Something, they had like 50-something again. Again, it's just like these are just were like, outliers, like bro. The high, like high 50s. So, I mean, if, if they're hitting those numbers, hey, man, the Heat are knocking their shots down. If you're playing good defense and you're just knocking down their shots, what are you going to do? Nothing you can only can do, do so. I, 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 like I said, this series is in the Heat's hands, and we'll see w- what they could do with it. But, uh, Kev, uh, to get this one to you, we're going to switch gears here. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the recent fight that took place in boxing this past weekend uh, with Javante Davis going up against Ryan Garcia. So, Did you want to hit baseball before the fight, just in case? We'll talk about the we'll talk about the fight first. Okay. We'll just, so I so guys, I don't really have much to say about this. I didn't happen to watch the fight. I was kind of catching bits and pieces of it, uh, bits and pieces of it on Twitter. Uh, Kev was keeping up a little bit more with it than I was. I was watching the Lightning game and then the, the Lakers game was going on on Saturday night. So uh, Kev will have more to say about this fight. But even I know Kev said it earlier that he even missed a couple of rounds himself. But he he watched a lot more than I did. So, Kev, I'll let you have the floor on this one. Just give me your thoughts on the Javante uh, Davis TKO against Ryan Garcia this past weekend. I mean, from what I could see, first and foremost, like Kyle said, let me clarify, I'm not a boxing fan. I don't watch a lot of boxing. I don't watch a lot of UFC, as you already know from multiple episodes if you've listened in before. Uh, I just happened to tune in because it was something that was trending. A lot of people were, were were hyping it up, obviously, all over social media, them face-to-face, talking shit. I'm not bringing my wife. I'm not bringing my kid to the fight. Like, all this stuff, right? I only know Ryan Garcia from TikTok. I only know him from YouTube. Like, the guy, the kid that is always constantly just, like, lightning quick hands, always hitting the bag super hard. Like, there's always this challenge or whatever where, like... I think like random celebrities come and see if they can take a couple punches like with the uh, with the chest pad uh, against some of his left hand hits, and uh, you know people always cave because they can't handle it. And I don't really know anything about Tank Davis or Javante Davis, yeah, Javante Davis. But all I know is they were talking a lot of smack between the other person. I know that Davis is an actual boxer on a regular basis. Not to say that Ryan Garcia isn't, but again, he kind of got his name built up from what I understand in social media. 
there was obviously a height difference. There was obviously a reach difference. There were, you know, all the, the boxing attributes. They were around the same weight, if I'm not mistaken. But again, just for the sake of height, reach, and shit like that, it looked like Ryan had the advantage. But, man, outside of round one, where it looked like Ryan was actually getting some good shots in, he was making some contact, he had him kind of trapped in the corner, uh, wrapped around the ropes. Once that second round started, Davis kind of took that edge where he... He kept his hands up. He realized that Garcia was a one-trick pony with just that left hook, as it was previously documented in, in you know notes and, and videos and highlights prior to the fight of Garcia's one-trick hit is literally that left hook. And if you can prevent that, if you can avoid that for the majority of the fight, you just kind of d- find a way to dance around and get to your spots. Um, you know, Davis knocks down Garcia in round two. I believe that was the second time Garcia has ever been put down on the mat in his entire career. And it was a good shot, man. He found a way to get around that left hook again. Came right back around, left hook of his own, right to the face. Garcia falls, immediately gets back up. It was within a second or two, so obviously the fight continued. But from that point on, the momentum had shifted. Outside of maybe round five-ish, four or five, Garcia, like the fight was in favor of Davis from the scorecard. 10-9, 10-9, 10-9, whatever the case may be, again, from scoring. And then we get into, uh, get into round seven. They're going back and forth a little bit. Garcia's really trying to get into that, 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 again, that left hook, trying to get him up. Davis is shorter, so Davis is really, a, a, it's a little easier, I would assume, to kind of get under your opponent when you're already a couple inches shorter. He ducks underneath, avoids the hit, and then at one point he goes for a jab or goes for a, um, not a haymaker, but a power shot. Again, I don't watch boxing, so I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm thinking and making it up as... You're talking about a right hook? Not the hook? rib shot, the shot before, the shot before. You're t- talking about a right hook? Yeah, well, no, it was his left hand because the shot that got Garcia was on this side, and that's Davis's left hand because he keeled over on the right side of his body. Yeah, yep. So um, it's a body shot. Before, Yeah, before Davis hit the body shot, he had made an attempt, and it missed. Garcia went for another shot up top. Davis just stood low, and then that body shot right to the ribs, which people were saying that it's probably a liver shot. Garcia takes that in, they back up, and then at one point, Garcia goes for another jab, and then he drops right back down. I saw a couple of videos on social media today that explain the the impact of what a punch like that does to your body, whether or not he broke a rib or two. It was like a delayed reaction to where if your liver gets hit to that point within that impact, it's like your body starts to shut off because you can't tolerate the pain. Garcia literally dropped like a sack of potatoes, not necessarily on his face, he dropped to a knee, and he had his hand visibly over, and he was like wincing in pain. Obviously, at that point, TKO, Davis wins the fight. It was just insane to see how fast the human body reacted. It was like, oh, okay, he took a body shot, he's good to go, and then Garcia goes down. It was, it was nuts. It wasn't a knockout to where he was sleeping. It wasn't a knockout to where he had to kind of like, like a ground and pounding UFC or anything like that, but the fact that a body shot could be that impactful is incredible. Boxing is such a creative sport to where you're focused solely using your hands, and you have to find your opponent's weak point. MMA is so different. Like Kyle loves, you got the feet, you got the ground and pound, you obviously have the submission aspect. Boxing is just the strength of your mental capabilities and obviously your two fists and what you can do inside that square. And man, people always want to see that flashy punch to the face where the mouthpiece spits out and there's freaking bloody nose and someone's asleep. And then you have strategic boxing here where Garcia's ribs were open, Ryan left the opportunity for Davis, Puts that heavy shot right there. When you slow mo, it looks like his freaking looks like his whole boxing glove went into the stomach of Garcia. When obviously it was his ribs, and then the immediate impact of the result. Man, great fight from what I could see. Again, I didn't get to see every single round, but 
I mean, for the most part, I found it entertaining. And I mean, uh, hopefully there will be a rematch because I think both fighters showed that they can compete from a long term and obviously at a uh, more consistent clip. But obviously Mayweather endorsed uh, Davis. Conor McGregor came into the locker room after the fight for Garcia and told him that he wanted to see more of it. So if I could tune into that fight again, I would like to. But for the sake of this one, I wasn't mad that I watched it. I found it to be very entertaining. That's great. I I remember watching the video. I think it was a slow-mo video of the TKO. And, you know, it's very interesting to be able to watch the fighters and how they react to certain hits. There was one guy in particular. This was in a UFC fight a couple years ago. I think this was on... This might have been on a New York card a couple years ago. I could have been that same fight uh, for the BMF belt back in the day. Um, And I remember this one fighter took took a strike to the face and he had a delayed knockout. So what ended up happening was the guy lands a shot and the, the guy that he just hit is, is still like, he's still in form. He's still in position. And then all of a sudden he takes a step back and then he just, he loses his footing and he like falls back to the cage and it was a delayed knockout, but it's weird seeing that you don't typically see that every now. It's very uncommon. I've only seen it maybe maybe once or twice where you see like a delayed knockout where a guy will take a strike and two to three seconds after that, he'll start stumbling backwards and the lights just go out internally. Even though that his eyes are open, his eyes are open. It's just that there's that that disconnect between the brain and the body and it's just, there's not much you could do. It's just your body just kind of goes into literally preservation mode then at that point. Um, when it came to this body shot on the slow-mo, it looked like he was looked like he took the shot, was in position after. It was probably fighting it. He probably knew how hard that shot was initially. Oh yeah. He but, felt it. But it's like you could only hold on for so long. You can only keep a straight face. And trust me, when it comes to those boxers, they could take some hits. They could take those punches. But it's just that after a certain point where it's so debilitating, even those guys can't keep a straight face. And you know, in Garcia's case, I give him credit for being able to withstand the punch and try to get back into position. But it's sometimes just those punches, they land so flush. Th- there's nothing you could do. It's no, like, not and, at all. But it, like and, I said, it was and, a good fight. And, and, and honestly, Garcia was smart. It's like, you can't take any more damage with that. With those liver shots, it's it's game over. You can't recover from that in, in the fight. And honestly, you have to give it up to Javante for just being able to land a flush body shot like that. He was patient, man. A lot of times Garcia was trying to push him into the corner, kind of rush him to make some mistakes, and he was trying to really get into him quick. But like I said, and like a lot of people were saying all over social media, Garcia's just got that left hand, and if you can make a miss, obviously at that point, a heavy swing, your body's already out of position. Under, it it, it was crazy, bro. I I wish body shots were a little more consistent, no matter whether it's in boxing or... Or in the UFC, because we saw a couple of years ago uh, when Stipe went up against DC. This is in the UFC. Uh, this is a title fight. And Stipe in the first three rounds against DC really struggled. I think DC was actually up three rounds to zero uh, in the first three rounds of this fight. And then Stipe made the decision to go for DC's body. Went with a bunch of body shots. Ended up getting a TKO because uh, DC is Daniel Cormier, by the way. He's on the commentating team. With the UFC, uh, sometimes you'll hear him on pretty much. Actually, you'll hear him pretty much on every UFC fight card. Um, but in his last fight, 
he got just obliterated by body shots against Stipe. And then he ended up, you know, suffering a TKO against Stipe and Stipe won the belt. Sometimes, you know, those body shots, man, if you're able to land them and land them consistently, they're just as powerful. They may be even more tactical than those headshots that people go for, which is the Because you're playing strikes. the long game at that point. Tap, and, and, tap, power, tap, yeah. tap. Eventually, it's going to give. Yeah. You know, especially if you're landing them consistently and they land flush. Oh, yeah. Trust me, those body shots are a bitch to deal with. So, you know, good on Javante getting that win over Garcia. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to catch that fight, bro. It's so about I time I changed it up from the typical sports thing, right? Yeah. So... I, that, that was just unfortunate timing with me because typically I, w- I would be more in tune to watch that. But just with the lightning game going on with the Lakers playing. Got to watch just, your team. That's priority. It, 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 those took priority. So that, that was just the case in in that specific instance. But okay, we got one more segment to go over. We're going to kick it over to the MLB. Uh, we're going to go over our most surprising team or like the most surprising fact of the MLB season so far. So currently we are a month into the season so far. Uh, there's been a lot of things to go over, but we're going to mostly focus on the biggest surprises that we've seen in the first month of the MLB season so far. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, what has been the most surprising fact or what has been the most surprising team that you've seen in the MLB so far a month into the season? I mean, there's a number of them. Obviously, the first one you think of is going to be the Rays, but I'm actually going to go in a different route here. I'm actually going to go with the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Arizona Diamondbacks leading their respective divisions. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's going to go on for the remainder of the season or that they're actually dominating, which which both teams respectively are. Well, one is and one isn't because the Diamondbacks are tied with the Dodgers for the 12-11 and uh, 11 record. Usually, the Diamondbacks are one of the laughing stocks of the NL. Usually, the Diamondbacks are not competitive at all. And they're finding ways to win games. And again, right now they are tied for first with the uh, Arizona Diamond, with the Los Angeles Dodgers for first place. But then you got the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're on an eight-game win streak or seven-game win streak, and they are eight and two in their last ten. They're sixteen and seven in front of the Brewers, in front of the Cubs, in front of the Cardinals, and to no surprise, in front of the Reds. But the Cardinals are nine and thirteen. They were supposed to be the favorites to come out of the NL Central, and they are playing horrific baseball. So it's like, when you really look at the makeup of this division, Chicago struggled last year. Milwaukee's always going to be up there. Cincinnati is a piss-poor organization from top to bottom. But you always expect it to be Milwaukee and St. Louis. And in this case, it's Pittsburgh and Milwaukee. It's probably the biggest surprise for me because you just don't expect it. How Pittsburgh is pitching, how they're able to score runs. I, I really do believe that they are probably one of the best teams in the MLB at this very moment in time. And how they're doing it is very, very effective. I mean, they're not going out there and they're blowing teams out. But if you look at their recent schedule, they're finding ways to win the core important games. 2-0, to 2-1, to 4-2, to 4-3. to They had a blowout win against the Rockies, which again are one of the worst teams in the MLB. 14-3. Then again, you go 5-3, to another close game, another blowout to the Rockies, which is, again, the same exact score, 14-3. Uh, they lose a tight one to the Cardinals, 5-4, 6-3, 3-0. Where I'm going with this. Every game, for the most part, outside of those two Rockies games, are within a 2-3 to run differential, and they're finding ways to win, whereas last year, they were losing games by an exceptional margin, whether that was getting blown out, whether that was not being able to finish strong. They weren't able to win these close games. And that is why people always say you have to find ways to put the past behind you and deal with what you have. 
build your farm system. Don't go out there and make crazy acquisitions. Deal with what you have. Build the team, and you will eventually find a way to surface back to the top. The Pirates are a prime example of that this season. Again, it's only the first quarter of the season, if that, because we're talking about what? That they're 16 and 7. That is 23 games in, so that's not even a quarter of the season. So, again, we have a lot of baseball left, but we wanted to talk about this because, again, this is just a team that I did not expect to be this good. And, again, the Cardinals being in the division, I definitely didn't see that coming. So, shout-out to Pittsburgh for finding a way to actually be competitive and um, to uh, to be doing what they're doing in a division that has the Brewers and the Cardinals, man. So, that's my most surprising team thus far. Yeah, Kev, for me, it really comes down to two teams. We've already talked about them once uh, a couple of weeks ago with the Tampa Bay Rays. Obviously, when you're off to a 19-3 and start, I mean, obviously, nobody expected Tampa to be that good. I mean, granted, when you look back to last year, they did make a wild card appearance. They ended up losing to the Guardians in that wild card round last year. But, I mean, when it comes to a hot start, that's an understatement when it comes to the Rays. And, I mean, Kev, as a team, they've already hit damn near 50 home runs. And like you said, we're not even 25 games into the season. So just offensively, they're getting it done. They already have over 200 hits as a team, which is in the upper echelon of the MLB. And then, Kevin, I'm going to be with you 100%. I think the Pirates are right alongside uh, the Rays when it comes to a team that's really just been one of the best spots to look at in the MLB so far. Because when I look at the Pirates, you know, granted, a 16-7 and record is an amazing start for Pittsburgh, usually just because when we've looked at Pittsburgh in the past, they're relatively a seller dweller. You know, this is a team that is usually in fourth or fifth place in the NL central. And honestly, it's just one of those things that, you know, maybe this is just a sign of it's early in the season. Is this something that the pirates can build on for the rest of the year? And when we look at what the pirates have had for their schedule so far this year, they haven't played against the best competition, but you know, to give credit where it's due, the Pirates have gone against the teams that they've played so far, and they've been playing very well. They've had some good games against the Reds recently. I think they had a three-game sweep against the Rockies uh, just about a week or two ago. And in some of these games, they're putting up decent runs with their performances. I think I, I think against the Rockies, I think they scored 14 runs in, in, in back-to-back games or they were at least scoring 10 runs in some of these games. So the offense is definitely showing up. Statistically speaking, when you compare them to the rest of the MLB, they are middle of the pack when it comes to their just their total offense. So one of the things that I'm going to pay attention to when it comes to the Pirates is if they can improve their offensive efficiency, they could be able to get their batting average up collectively as a team because right now they're... 13th they're batting 250 as a team um you compare that to the rays the rays are the best team in the mlb when it comes to total overall batting average if they could be able to get that up into a top 10 scenario once we reach about the quarter mark of the mlb season then maybe we could start having a different perspective about the pirates for the rest of the year but when it comes to just the start of the year so far i mean the pirates you know when you're looking at a situation they're the top team in the division, damn near 30 games into the season. That's definitely something to note. The same thing goes with the Rays. You know, obviously, the Rays have the best record in the MLB by a pretty wide margin. But 
you know, when it comes to both the teams with the Rays and the Pirates, these are definitely the two teams, as far as I see it, these have been the biggest shocks so far. But if I actually had to say who's the biggest surprise so far, I would actually give it to the Pirates simply just because the Rays in recent memory have more playoff experience than the Pirates do. And knowing that the Pirates have been relatively a subpar team over the last couple of years, the fact that they're playing this well this early on, I think there's definitely something to be appreciated when it comes to the Pirates' early success. And honestly, this is something that we're going to have to monitor throughout the first quarter of the season and probably then the first half of the season. Because if they can keep this pace up to where, let's say, they're in first place or they're kind of vying for first place in the division about halfway through the season, I think their outlook will be far better uh, than what it is currently just because it's still early. There's going to be a lot of adjustments that a lot of these teams are going to make. And who knows? The Pirates could go through a pretty bad slump in May, in June. They had a pretty good April, but there's no guarantee that that could translate over uh, once we start getting into those summer months where it becomes a little bit hotter and you know teams can go on huge stretches. Teams can fall apart. But as of right now, I'd, I'd have to actually give the edge to the Pirates for having the most surprising start to me. And that's despite the fact that the Rays have had a 19-3 start, which is just kind of crazy to put into context. But that's how I see it. I mean, and to close the baseball topic out, we have to mention, man, the AL East, it's not close. It is the best division in baseball. All mm-hmm. five teams are above the record of 500. And it is insane how competitive each game has been between each team. I know we haven't all played one another yet. We haven't played Boston yet. And stuff like that. We haven't played the Rays yet, but man, nineteen and three, fourteen and seven, thirteen and nine, thirteen and nine, twelve and eleven. The only division in baseball to where everybody has double-digit wins and is above the five hundred record winning percentage. It's not funny. Everybody's getting better every single year, and we're talking about the Baltimore Orioles being second in the division, who showed a lot of promise last year. Come the second half of the year, where the Yankees were faltering, and if we would have kept losing a, a few more games. I think Baltimore would have actually taken our spot in the playoffs, if I remember correctly. But I'm looking at this and I'm saying, yo, this is getting out of hand because who the hell's going to come out on top? Yeah. Like, realistically, like, how is this going to work? Because I, I don't really know what's going to happen here, man. It's just, it, again, it's only April. But to know that it's this competitive this early leads me to believe that it's going to be this way for the rest of the year and it's going to be a dogfight for whoever comes out of the East. I don't see Tampa continuing this historic run where they're going to go like Golden State, like 73-9. and It will come back down to earth just like everybody has highs and lows. But if this persists, bro, those wild card, those wild card spots, I think every team's going to come out of the AL East at this point. Yeah, damn near at this point. You're exactly right. Just because, you know, when it came to the AL East last year. I mean, obviously, even though that the Yankees finished in first place, you even thought that they could have been better than what they finished as. Yeah, because we were the best team before the break and then fell apart. I think we were the worst team in baseball after the break. Yeah, you guys, I I mean, you guys were unstoppable. You guys were unstoppable in the first half of the year. I just remember, I think you were even talking about that. You were worried about what that team would be post the All-Star break. And, um, I mean, to be fair, they were able to shake off the rust going into the playoffs. Uh, they made the ALCS, but... Did we, though? Batting under 200 for every series we played in, did we, though? Made it to the ALCS, nonetheless. 
swept for a sweep. Anyway, yeah. what were you saying? No, it just, it just seems like from the whole division perspective, going into where we are right now, it just seems like the whole competitive nature of the division is at a much heightened level. Oh, yeah. And the fact that it's actually maintaining that level of competitiveness from last year as well, they, they just essentially carried on into this season, is really something to behold. Now, granted, like you said, there's an ebb and flow to the season. You know, teams are going to go through high marks. Teams are going to hit their valleys. It just comes with the territory. I think it just comes down to, you know, which team can be able to hold those consistent trends of just getting wins throughout the year mm. and which teams are going to falter, you know, and, and teams are going to go through that, you know, and the results will speak for themselves, you know, the farther we go into the season. And honestly, in my mind, the season really doesn't even start ramping up until probably June. June July. And just because April and May, there's going to be a lot of adjustments that the teams are going to make with their lineups, with their, the, with the players they put out into the field. You know, this is the time where you use these first 40 games of the MLB season to kind of figure out, okay, what's our, what's our rotation going to be? You know, what's going to be our lineup that we could consistently rely on throughout the season. And then pretty much by June, July, you know, unless the team really goes through a major slump, they're going to have their lineups and their rotations set from there on out. So, you know, like I said, still early. We're only at the end of April. We've got plenty of time. Uh, for these teams to make something of themselves. And we'll just kind of see how it plays out from here. Yeah. But guys, that about wraps up the episode. Um, this is the first damn near two hour episode we've had in a long time. But, uh, you know, we appreciate the support that we've had. Um, we obviously are grateful for any support we've had via audio, YouTube, TikTok. Uh, again, we, we're, we're a broken record. But again, we just wanted to share our thanks. We got plenty of content coming through. We always say it, especially with everything going on. So, I mean, oh. Kyle, that's everything I have, so we can oh. kind of wrap this up. Oh, we, I, I, I got to mention this, too. What? Uh, we are going to get our blue check mark on our Twitter page. Yes, sir. Uh, Twitter blue incoming, ladies and gentlemen. So if you ain't follow us, you can follow us at Kyle underscore Kev underscore pod I think it's, on Twitter. I, I, I think it's Kevin underscore Kyle underscore pod. I think it's Kevin first. The links are in our link tree on all of our social media. Guys, yeah. we can't spell. And it's midnight, so we're a little tired. But uh, Kyle, take us home, brother. No, like Kev said, we just appreciate you, you guys supporting the podcast in any way that you have, whether it's on YouTube or the audio platforms or on Instagram or TikTok. We definitely appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and just interacting with the content. Obviously, like Kev said, we'll have plenty of content for you guys for the rest of the week. Um, you know, it's just, you got... NBA playoffs going on. You got the NHL playoffs going on. MLB is rocking and rolling. There's going to be a lot of content for you guys. I, I, I do got to say just, you know, when it comes to the NHL stuff, I mean, you know, when it comes to game four with this lightning and Maple Leaf series. I'm going to be tuned into that one. So I, I'm definitely going to be paying attention to that one. Uh, that game three was a tough one for the lightning, but we'll see if they can respond uh, going into game four. And then uh, Kev, I think uh, the, the devils and the Rangers, Played. Went into OT and we lost in OT two to uh, three to two. Yeah, they they run that back uh, for Game Four on Monday night at the Garden. So, Garden's been busy lately, dude. <laughs> yeah, just like the Crypto Arena, man. Just like I said in my point, everybody is kind of just like tear up, tear down. Tear, shout out to the workers. And, and you know the crazy thing is, is that the Kings just played their home game tonight at the Crypto Arena too. Nuts. So absolutely incredible. Getting, yeah, they're getting they're getting everything right now. So, like like I've said, those. 
those uh, arena workers, they are busting their hump right now just to keep up with the pace of these games. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for the NHL playoffs because they have been nothing short of phenomenal so far. And we're still in the first round. So very similar to the NBA. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that as well. But once again, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, We'll have content throughout the week for you guys. And until then, we'll see you guys later. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour.